welcome inside episode 100 of Breaking Bats, presented by Not For Long Media. My name is Justin Ayers. Folks, the day has finally come. It is my favorite episode of the entire year. It is finally here. It is the best of 2023 special featuring the best of our incredible guests. I should mention, this is just a few of our great guest moments. I recommend everyone check out our catalog of episodes from throughout the year to hear everyone. But 2023, it was a big year for the pod. We had a ton of active players, media members, broadcasters, and people connected to the game that we love. I had the most fun ever, and I'm super thankful for everyone who joined us and gave us some of their time. It truly means a lot. I'm also thankful for the crew of people who joined me on this regular basis this year. Brian, Ryan Ripkin, Kate, Colin, and Jack could not have done it without you guys. So as we wrap up 2023 and look ahead to 2024, here is the order of guests that you will be hearing on today's episode. First up, Texas Rangers first baseman Nathaniel Lowe, then Reds play-by-play man John Sadak, Rays sideline reporter Trisha Whitaker, Tigers utility man Tyler Nevin, Phillies reliever Matt Strom, Yankees bullpen catcher Colin Thoreau, Rays closer Pete Fairbanks, Rays outfielder Josh Lowe, the best baseball podcaster of all time Brian O'Grady, Orioles first baseman Ryan O'Hearn, and eight-year MLB veteran pitcher Dan Straley, and last but not least, closing us out, will be White Sox first baseman slash outfielder Gavin Sheets. All right, before we get to all of that, they are all brought to you by two apparel sponsors, the first one being Zero Negative. They are a brand out to inspire and empower individuals to find a positive message in everything they do every time, promoting positivity and mindfulness in all of their products. Check them out, zeronegative.com. And last but not least, Few Will Hunt. It is a great American company out of Philadelphia. They are out to restore the dignity of hard work. Check them out online at fewwillhunt.com. With that all being said, let's send it to the best of 2023. Enjoy. But I mean, I want to start with like the, the incredible 2022 you had. I mean, when we had you on, you were you were lighting it up, but you, you really turned it on there in the second half of last year. Uh, but just like overall, you know, you finished the year hitting over 300. You had nine more home runs than the year before. Like, what can you int- like attribute your increase in production to if you had to look back at it all? Um, you know, each year definitely has its different struggles. Um, and I went through some struggles pretty early and it, it became very apparent that I need to do more damage with better pitches to hit. So I would say that coming down the stretch right there in the middle and then at the end, I, I did a lot better job of just hitting pitches to hit instead of worrying about what my swing looked like or how my mechanics were working or things of the sort. And, you know, thankfully it, it paid off a lot. No doubt. It's, you know, after 2021, did you like challenge yourself to be better in any particular areas or like, did you have personal goals going into the last season? Um, I, I knew I needed to slug um, as far as like just keeping in line with, the most, the majority of productive first baseman, right? You're going to look at power numbers and and homers and RBIs and doubles are definitely something that are, you know, right in the middle of where you want to be. So, you know, to be able to kind of have some success and be able to really do a lot more damage instead of just flaring singles. And then at times, you know, take what the game gives. And if I have to, you know, hit a knuckle buster somewhere through the infield, hopefully it'll get through, you know, but Thankfully, I was able to get uh, a lot of pitches to handle right there in that stretch in August and do a lot of damage. It's, it's, it was incredible. Like, 
I don't know if you ever like nerd out on like some of these high like fan graphs or like some of these baseball like analytics like outlets, but like I read this big fan graphs workup about your 2021 versus your 2022. They broke it all down. Like there's there's a couple of things I wanted to ask you about and know that like or ask like if they were like conscious things, like your numbers against sliders in 2021 versus 22. Like in 22, you were one of the top three hitters in baseball in terms of sliders, and 11 of your 27 bombs were sliders. Like, was that something that like came as a result of like added work, or like what? How did that all kind of shape out? Um, let's see. It well, there's probably another piece to it on their side too that a well-executed slider is probably the best pitch in baseball, right? Because it's going to come in hard, it's going to have some depth to it, and you can really make it start in a whole lot of places where your eyes may not tell you, okay, this is going to be a ball because as you know, a lot of hitters will tell you like, yeah, the heater in and the slider down and then look really similar. And one of them hits you in the back foot and the other one comes back over the middle of the plate. So if you're going to roll the dice and, and, you know, swing at that pitch, then, you know, when you, when you don't get the result you want and you wind up swinging over, three or four sliders in a game, then yeah, keep throwing them. But when they start in the right spot, they're already spinning right and they're coming in harder and all you have to do is hit it. So yeah, I don't know. There was never, there was never an adjustment where I was like, okay, well I'm going to dominate sliders, but it just kind of happened to be what the game called for in that stretch. And I was able to capitalize. No doubt. And like another point that you, yeah, Ryan, do you want to jump in? No, I was just saying you for sure did. You, you keep going. I got a couple thoughts brewing, but you, you finish off with you, when you started, Justin. Okay. Yeah, no, I was just going to say like, and, and also in that piece that I read, they, they talked about, and you might even touch on this in your answer a couple answers ago, but it was like you sacrifice some of your plate discipline, plate discipline for what they call it responsible aggression in the strike zone. Uh, is that a fair way to assess your, your approach at the plate going from 21 to 22? So, yeah. Okay. So one of our, beat writers actually kind of took that quote and ran with it. And then it got to our on-field reporter. And because I I knew that I needed to be a little bit better, actually a lot better with pitches in the heart of the plate. And I called it being responsibly aggressive, right? Because you have to be not afraid to swing and miss, right? You have to be not afraid to, yeah, you get the curveball that sometimes it looks like a fastball and maybe you're coming unglued to do something. Yeah. But you have to, be aggressive responsibly. So why would I shift my vision to a part of the plate that's not my strong suit, right? I need to get better at what I'm good at already and incrementally increase in what I need to improve on. So yeah, I think I just finally got more comfortable with realizing that the right pitches and the right counts are where you're going to do your damage. And when you're doing damage, your A swing is going to show up. So why would I try and create an a swing to cover bad pitches to hit it just doesn't make sense before you did get the reg job though i I was reading about this it was during the pandemic i believe you know i think there was a prolonged period of maybe uncertainty in your professional career um how did you kind of stay ready for that for the opportunity when it did come but like still trying to be positive and not try to like you know fall into some of the pitfalls that may come along with it uh well for me it, it directly coincided with the pandemic so the uh I went almost a calendar year with no work, no income. Uh, that was that was pretty scary. That was that was terrible. Uh, and I applied to like work at convenience stores and supermarkets, and I couldn't get people to call me back. I couldn't get an interview anywhere, um, let alone anything within the industry. But sports stopped, and there were no opportunities. Um, 
And it, it was depressing. It was mentally and emotionally a really, really hard time. Um, but I had some people within the industry, uh, two basketball analysts that I worked with a lot, a guy named Chris Walker, former uh, head coach at Texas Tech, works at CBS, uh, a guy named Tim Doyle, a Northwestern grad who worked at BTN, that works at CBS, does some NBA coverage with Turner. We talked on the phone at least once a week, sometimes three, four times a week, and uh, just to try to like be positive. And they helped me a ton during that time. Uh, and it was probably a couple of months into the pandemic um, when I, I hit my low point, I'd go for long walks every day and I would just think, what can I do? What should I do? Who should I be contacting? And then it just kind of clicked one day and I'm like, what am I doing? Like get on the computer and start writing people. This is the perfect, nobody's doing anything. This is the time to try to reach out to as many people as possible. And <coughs> excuse me, that's what I did. And, uh, and I, I tried to begin it with something that was just positive and easy for me, which is I wrote thank yous to anybody who had ever helped me, anybody who had helped me along the way. Dave Sims, voice of the Seattle Mariners. He was one of the first big league guys to give me a tape review. He had gotten off the treadmill on the road with the Mariners. I'm sitting at my desk in Wilmington, Delaware at my A-ball job. He spent an hour on the phone with me going over my tape, going over my background, going over ideas, super positive and appreciative. Uh, Gary Cohen with the Mets sent me one of the greatest single email critiques that I ever got. And I, I reached out to every person that had helped me just to say thanks and to check in on them. And uh, yeah, it, it makes me emotional thinking about it, you know, because the, these were people that were so kind and so generous and, uh, and it, it helped me a ton. It really did. And then, and that kind of let me get the ball rolling to then try to take that next step. Like, let me write a bunch of people I don't know. And I wrote every team in major league baseball. I wrote every team in the NBA. I wrote every producer name that I could find knowing my hit rate was going to be low. But if I find one, yes. And it, it didn't directly happen to what turned out to be the Reds job. That, that kind of happened later. Um, but I, I tell young people this all the time. I firmly believe it. I, I do think there is a sense of karma in this world. I really do. I don't think while you're striving for goal A, you're always going to achieve it. I think that's kind of storybook. But I do think that if you're not striving for A, then B or C don't happen. I do think you need to be your own instigator and motivator. And I do think if you put in enough effort long enough, something happens that will be fitting and right and help you achieve what you want. That's an incredible story, John. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that, by the way. That yeah. was, and, and when the Reds opportunity did come up before the 2021 season, like that's a pretty short turnaround time though. Like to, to learn everything there is to know about Cincinnati Reds baseball, all the history, the tradition, like what was your, what was that crunch time process? Like trying to get acclimated before you actually did start calling games for the Reds. Well, uh, first of all, I would caution, I still don't nearly know everything about Cincinnati Reds history. And that's something that I'll, I'll continue to try to achieve for the rest of my working life. Um, but yeah, that, that is a, it's a big undertaking. It helped um, specifically for me that two of my partners when I was in AAA, one of my closest and dearest friends, Darren Hedrick, we met when we were in A-ball. He now does baseball games and women's hoops at the University of Kentucky. He's part of their football broadcast crew. He does some SEC network stuff. Um, we were together at AAA for three years, and he's a Tennessee native and graduate who grew up a Reds fan. And my first AAA partner, who was my intern there, Andrew Kappas, who now works for the Pirates AAA team in Indianapolis, grew up in northern Kentucky as a Reds fan. Um, and then I started to realize, as, as this job you know, came about, how many people I knew that were from or in Cincinnati. There were a lot. 
So I could lean on them. I could call them be like, all right, well, what do you think the fan base would think about this? Well, what are the short list of books that you suggest I read? What are moments that I need to familiarize myself with? And, uh, and that helped a ton. And then all the people that are on our crew um, and along with the organization, uh, the Reds Hall of Fame and Museum is one of the elite, amazing experiences in baseball. Nobody salutes and recognizes uh, the achievements of their franchise the way the Reds do with that place and with how often they bring back their stars and the, the meaning that those players have to the folks that are in the greater Cincinnati area. Uh, so all I have to do is literally go right next door from the stadium and there is an enormous multi-leveled museum to the Reds history that each year focuses on a different you know, area, puts a spotlight on something new. Uh, this year it's, it's on the, the women and girls that have made the Reds the Reds throughout the, their history. Uh, I haven't had a chance to see it yet. I'm in Arizona with the team. I will once the season gets underway, uh, but that's an incredible resource. And, and I bet just like, I, I bet that was a, an enjoyable process though. Like trying to get up to speed with everything. Like I, I'm sure maybe I'm going back to like the, the research and analytical mindset that you once had in college. Like I'm sure like, was there a party that enjoyed trying to like get up to speed and just try to like this, this is a place that I hopefully will call my home for a long time. Let me try to know everything I know, uh, can know about it beforehand. Oh, definitely. I mean, and I say this frequently to, uh, to young announcers is that you, I think have to have at least an understanding if not a love for prep in general in this job. Um, you know, bluntly, I, I work on average over the last 15 years, it's probably 180 to 200 events a year of various sports for different outlets. At least a third of those games are not good. Yeah, they're not close. They're not competitive. Ugly things happen. Um, the, so then what are you doing? Like if the game is not interesting or is ugly in some way, depending upon the sport and whatnot, um, the rest is a combination of your personality, your analyst personality, and the prep you did, the stories you have. What'd you learn? What are you trying to share with people? What are we looking for? What are we anticipating? What are we reacting to and in what fashion? Um, so I actually get as excited, sometimes more, for the prep than I do for certain events that I do, uh, in part because I kind of think, well, this might not be a great game. Um, but I love learning these stories about these people. And I, I think there's a high chance I'm going to get to use more of them than I would in another game. Um, and I, I love doing that. I love meeting with, talking to, and learning about people. Yeah, I, I wanted to go back to when the Rays clinched last September. Um, MLB Network, I was watching it all that night. I think it was a Friday night when they clinched. Uh, they carried your entire like locker room, just like you going around to every, every single player. Yeah, really? I, I didn't even know they did that. <laughs> they did. Um, and then, and then when, uh, when they went back to the studio, uh, I think Greg Amsinger said like, what a, what a performance by Trisha Whitaker. Here's a fun fact for you at her, at her media class at IU. Uh, she teaches a class on how to handle locker and post-game interview situations. And all the guys were like, wait, really? And he's like, no, no, actually no, but she's just, <laughs> well, actually, no, he's right. I do. I totally do teach them. Well, you actually I, do? <laughs> yeah, I totally teach them. I show them that video almost every year, not all of me, but like of, Oh, my other girlfriends too. And in, in, in the business, like Meredith Morakovich, she's a pro at it because the Yankees make the postseason every flipping year. So she's learned how to do it. Julia Morales for the Astros. Of course, she has to know how to do it. But, but Greg, Greg, oh, I'm going to have to give him grief for that. I didn't know he said that. I love Greg. He's the best. I've learned a lot <laughs> watching Greg too. You want to talk about unflappable and, and a natural presence on air. That's Greg. I mean, he just, it, there's nothing that could, 
there's nothing that could rattle him. And he's just such a natural on air. And I've learned a lot from watching him. So, yeah. <laughs> it's funny you mentioned that. Uh, he's a friend of the pod. He, he sits on the shelf behind me. Oh, uh, so. there he is. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, you will not find a, you not find a bigger Greg Amsinger fan than myself. Um, I'm sure he would do the same in those kind of situations. Uh, but how, so like you, you mentioned your preparation for like, um, you know, right. You're writing down notes. Like, did you have like extra like stuff prepared for that night when you go into a, a you know, the, the locker room after a big playoff clinching win like that? So actually the night before I'm sitting there on my like computer in my notes app that syncs to my phone. And for, most of the key players and the starting rotation and some of the key bullpen guys, I would write their name and then I would just write a few little bullet points about them. Right. So I would, you know, let's say there was a guy in there who was making the postseason for the first time. I would make sure to write that down. Or let's say there's a guy in there who, you know, is a longtime veteran of the game. And this is only his second time making the postseason, whatever it may be. But I did have some of those storylines mapped out before the game just to make sure I remembered. And, and, and even like in those moments where you're just like the music's blaring and they're throwing champagne everywhere and, you know, whatever, it might be h hard to remember like, oh, like, don't forget this guy was injured in um, April and May, right? Whoops, April and May. And he came back, right? So I'll put that in my notes just to make sure I don't forget to give, give that interview context. The most important thing in those situations is absolutely the emotion. Right. So it's really about the team and the grand, the, the bigger picture. But there are some players like Wander Franco when they made the postseason in 2022 last season. The poor man broke his freaking hand. Right. He had surgery and he came back. Was he the same Wander Franco we're used to? No, he wasn't. But they still made the postseason. So that's something you have to bring that up in the interview with Wander. Um, Corey Kluber, I had to bring up what he said when he was first signed by the Rays, which is. I feel like this team is the closest, one of the closest teams to win the World Series. So that's why I wanted to come here. Obviously, that didn't end up happening. They underperformed, blah, 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 blah. But when they made the postseason, that was important for me, for me to bring up. So yeah, I, I do, I do think about that ahead of time. It was, it was a like you said, it was a master class on how to do that. So I, I like going back and watching some of that. Um, like, is that like just like an occupational hazard though? Like whether you're doing like you know, you're standing on the side after a walk-off and you get the Gatorade bath or you're in the locker room. Like, do you have to, like, keep your head on a swivel for those kind of things? A little bit. But, like, the thing about it with the walk-offs, and I realized this this past year, you know, everybody's like, don't you know it's coming? And I'm like, no, they do it three times. So, like, sometimes they only do it twice. Like, they'll they'll dump Gatorade over him twice or they'll only do it once. So, I'm like, I don't know when it's coming. And also, you got to remember in the moment for those walk-off interviews, it's live. So in my IFB, I got my producer being like, Trish, are you ready? Are you good? Are you good? We're coming down to you at five, four. And so the last thing, I mean, I don't care how many times it happens. The last thing I'm thinking about is somebody coming up behind me and pouring a Gatorade, you know, a cooler on my head. And also I'm trying to, I'm trying to make sure, you know, whoever it is, Manuel Margot, Randy Rosarena, I'm trying to be like, hey, come on, come on. This is your first stop. Like, come on, get over here. I know it's fun to celebrate. Please celebrate, but come on. Um, and so I'm not thinking about that. And, and I don't really want to think about it. If it happens, it happens. If it doesn't, fine. If they miss me, great. If they don't, I don't care. It's good for your hair. Like, <laughs> apparently beer is good for your hair, too, in those locker room celebrations. In the 70s, they used to make beer shampoo because of the hops and the protein in it. It's good for your hair. Best hair day ever after our clinching games. I was going to say, like, what was the next day like after you got champagne and Budweiser out yeah. of here? 
Beautiful. Yeah. It was beautiful. <laughs> I was so shiny. It was so healthy. And um, I told everybody, I was like, I, I would like a sponsorship from Budweiser. And I'm going to just put a can of beer, a can of Budweiser in my shower and like pour a little of my shampoo before I wash my hair. Because I'm serious. I mean, look, at you can look it up. There's, there's uh, beer shampoo from the 70s. They were on something. So I did want to take it back, though, to start. So obviously growing up in a baseball family with your father, Phil Nevin, uh, what's the earliest thing that you can remember about being around the game, whether like being in at a clubhouse, maybe running around the backfields? What, what's, what's the earliest thing you can think that you can remember? Yeah, uh, I bet you Riff can attest this too, but uh, you're always rooting for dad's team when it means you get to go in the clubhouse after the, afterwards. Um, so honestly, it didn't matter what he did any one of those games. I just wanted the Padres. He was mainly with the Padres when I was growing up. I just wanted the Padres to win because that way I could go down hang out with the boys after the game, enjoy a win with them. And that's, that's definitely probably where I fell in love with the game, honestly. Absolutely. I mean, so your, your dad played until you were nine and then he coached after, but like, what was that experience like growing up? Um, you know, having him like, you know, gone for long periods of time, like what was the family dynamic like during that time? Yeah. So fortunately enough, uh, he was in San Diego for most of and established for most of what I remember. Um, that 2000 to 2006 range, you know, I was three to 10. Um, and just being able to, uh, be in the same area all year long off season and during the season was great. Um, spring training, uh, not, not too far, not too long. You know, we would go during spring, uh, spring break for us for school. And, uh, so it, it, he was gone, you know, for road trips and stuff, but for the most part, you know, it was just a couple of weeks at a time. And he'd be right back home. So we were, we were really fortunate in that regard. As I'm learning now as a player, it doesn't always work out that great, you know, being able to be at home for majority of the year. I love that. And plus, like, and this is probably where Ryan can jump in too, where it's like when you started playing baseball yourself, like, was there any, like, extra pressure to perform or, like, internal or external factors that kind of affected the, you know, the baseball journey for yourself? Yeah, not – not not for my dad ever you know it's just it kind of a sense of responsibility like you want to kind of live up to what people think they might see in you um but my dad was always great uh with making sure that it didn't come from him he always wanted me to play other sports push me to do other things um i just happened to take a liking to baseball you know um but yeah not not from him just you know the normal stuff you hear especially in san diego growing up with the nevin name in that time frame uh, but it was nothing I ever dreaded. I was I was always really proud of of my dad and and my family. So um, you know, it was something I took with took with me, and I tried to make myself better out of it. And, and Ryan too, like I imagine, like you know, the coaching that took place, like you know, in the backyard. I feel like that has to be like one of the coolest experiences to have somebody as talented as both of your fathers were. Just having that person be the one to teach you the game, like that had to be like the coolest thing ever. Yeah, I think it's cool where in this i think it's kind of when you look back you know i think at the time when you're a kid that's you know like nev you probably that's how i felt at least is when you went and you were excited to be in the locker room because it was it was fun it was cool but you didn't really know anything differently it was just an experience you got to you got to be at work with your dad you know and, and and to and to see the guys and and for me it's like that that was just the cool part but it wasn't kind of wow, this guy's really good at baseball. You know, this is just my dad and just another element um, of exposure. But, I mean, now I think – I mean, you could touch on it too, but that, that, that's just kind of how I felt. It was you appreciate the lessons from your father in the game as you get older, 
but at that young of an age, you know, you're just kind of valuing, you know, yeah. just time with dad. Yeah. The lessons aren't really learned, you know, sit down, here's your lesson. It's just kind of absorbing what's around you really. Um, you know, Rip, you're around plenty of Hall of Famers in Baltimore, San Diego too, with Trevor Hoffman, Tony Gwynn, and they were basically just dad's friends. You know, they weren't these idle figures of, of you know, that you get starstruck. I, I just grew up around them, you know. So it it definitely helped when I got into baseball of of realizing how everybody, you know, is, is human <laughs> and everybody is just playing baseball, really. There's obviously some that are better than others, but it – I think the lessons learned are kind of just the experiences that go with it and, you know, just observing um, people at the top of their craft and, and enjoying what they have to offer. Was there one thing that maybe like Tyler, that maybe like your dad, like tried to instill in you, maybe it doesn't have to be like a, like a phrase or like a saying or anything like that, but like the way, like how you play the game, right. Or like, is I'm sure that had to be a big part of, you know, growing up with him as your, your father. Yeah, again, nothing that he sat down and tried to ingrain yeah. into me, but just watching him um, and how he interacted with with the people in the clubhouse, um, how they went about their business, how he went about his business. Um, it was it was really cool looking back, something I didn't probably notice in the time, but definitely stuck with me subliminally. But now looking back, like that's kind of what sticks out the most, I would say. Yeah. And um, just just it's really cool when I get to think about those experiences. And not that I took him for granted, but I would have, I would have loved to be back in that moment to really fully understand what was happening in front of me, and uh, and enjoy it that way. It's great, crazy because yeah, I was listening to some of the, like the interviews you've done, just talking about your mentality, you know, going after guys. Uh, you're striking out like was it twelve per nine, and you're in the top three percent of the league in strikeout percentage. I mean, I look back, we just put that twelve <laughs> or eleven strikeout performance against the Rockies yeah. up not that long ago, like. Do you think that having that mindset has been, you know, productive or it's been, you know, it, it's gotten you the results that you've, you've wanted this season and just like what's what's worked so well for you that you're able to get this many swings and misses? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, not only my my mindset of pitching, but the the pitching staff here with or the coaches, the with Cap, Cotham and everyone around me with the analytics and everything just under, I got, I got a better understanding of where my pitches play. So I've never, I've never really been a person that is going to throw to a scouting report because I want to throw to my strengths and especially early in account. Oh, Oh, it's like, how can I get to Oh one? Because the difference in an Oh one at bat and a one Oh at bat is like a hundred and something points on batting average. So it's, it's crazy how important that first pitch is. And again, I'm not I'm not going to pitch my weakness if it's the hitter's weakness. I'd rather I'd rather fight fire with fire every time. And uh, you know, just I think too they they made a they made a few tweaks to my what I used to call my curveball, but it's a slider now. Um, and then also just my my focus with my cutter, more worrying about it playing up in the zone than really worrying about getting my cutter to the back foot or down in the zone. So I think that that has helped me a lot with uh, with the swing and misses because before I could never get my I could never get my curveball or my slider down. I couldn't. It was it, it was a strike pitch, no doubt. You could blindfold me and I could still throw it for a strike right now, but it was never really like that that put away pitch. And I think the minor the minor tweaks we made it to it here has made it a put away pitch. Wow, this is something that we talked about last week on the show uh, with our old pal Steve Johnson. He's pitched for the Orioles, but just like two yeah. strike approach. Um, 
what what is your two strike approach and and how do you like how do you go about facing hitters when you have them one two 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 like how how do what's your strategy for that yeah i mean i told caleb here our pitching coach i said you know i want to i want to have the most three pitches or less at bats and with that i'm going to probably give up the most o2 hits but uh you know it's again it, it there's so again i'm not a scouting report guy so i don't look at what guys chase I'm more so I'm in the at bat. I trust a lot in my catchers, but uh, you know, just, just what have I activated that hitter in? Like, where are we at in the at bat? Have I been inside? Has he swung inside? Am I away? Has he taken away? And it just, it, it's, it's a story throughout the whole at bat. And I, I just kind of go off what I've activated them in what lanes and where I think they're looking. And again, just what's my strength. And that's, that's how I do it. Do, are the Phillies, like, are they super analytical with you? Or do they try to, like, do they work with you knowing that, hey, I'm not a scouting report guy? Um, like, wh- what's kind of the back and forth way, forth like with, like, the Phillies organizationally and pitching philosophy-wise? Yeah, I mean, that's, I think the, so they're not, like, super analytical to where they're like, hey, you need to throw this in this count or whatever. It's more so, like I said, like my curveball, they, they looked at it and they're like, hey, it's just not getting down. Why don't you just try this with your wrist? Because they, they're big into like the edutronic, the slow motion cameras, all that stuff. And uh, they showed me a few videos and they're like, this is where it is. And I'm a visual learner. That's how I've always been. Probably why I wasn't very good in public school, but, uh, you know, a big visual learner. And uh, that once they showed it to me, it was something very easy for me to mimic once I could see it on camera and see what I was doing and what they wanted me to do. And once I did it, it was like, you could just see a night and day difference in the break of my ball and how late it was breaking. So I, I don't, I don't want to say they're super analytical, but we get there with the analytics, no doubt. Um, but they, again, they know I'm not an analytical guy. I'm not, a, I'm not a scouting report guy. So they, they, they look at me and they're like, well, let's just sharpen iron. Then let's just, figure out how to make you a little little sharper and send you out there with your arsenal and see what happens. Being on a couple of different teams now at this point in your career, how have you seen organizational pitching philosophies evolve like team to team and year to year? Like, has there been like, you know, the Royals, the Padres, the Red Sox and the Phillies, like, have you noticed, like, has there been drastic changes between them or, you know, have you seen similarities from the different teams that you've been on? Yeah. I mean, I would just say with like, the the era I came up in so like when I came up in Kansas City it was like analytics were just kind of like they were spreading they were it was it was the beginning of it so I wouldn't say it was too much in Kansas City but talking with guys that are still there it sounds like they're they're turning the corner and becoming more analytical and that seems to be like every place I've left when I'm doing something new and I talk to my old teammates it sounds like they're kind of doing it as well so I would say the game as a whole has changed to more analytics and I mean, too, I think I, I truly believe in my process of just compete pitch by pitch instead of worrying. Like when you look at these scouting reports of these hitters, they're big league hitters. Like those scouting reports look scary. It's like, I got to throw the ball here. I got, like, but the plate's this big and you want me to just throw it here? Like what? Like that, that's intimidating in itself. So for me to take the men, like baseball, I mean, you've played, you know how big of a mental game this is like, to, to take as much of the mental part out of this and just worry about executing and competing, it makes it that much easier for me. And I think that's where the analytics have helped me to, to trust my stuff. Like 
I can trust my fastball in the top of the zone in a fastball count. Like it's just the analytics say that it'll play up there and it, it gives you the trust. But you look at some of these guys and it's like, dang, you can't throw a back foot slider to Rafael Devers. But for some guys, that's their put away pitch. And it's like, well, if you look at the scouting report, it's going to look very intimidating trying to throw it there. And you're probably going to miss that. But if you just, in my opinion, you rip it with all the, as much, as much conviction as you can behind it, it's going to be more effective than trying to place it in the spot. We interrupt this episode to bring you a word from the official sponsor of Not For Long Media and the Breaking Bass podcast, the original Fudge Kitchen. It is a staple of the Jersey Shore with six locations in Cape May, Wildwood, North Wildwood, Stone Harbor, and Ocean City. The original Fudge Kitchen makes all of their fudge in-store guaranteeing a delicious product, so stop by and let them know that Not For Long Media and Breaking Bass sent you. Check them out online at fudgekitchenswithans.com as they are shipping fudge and sweet treats all across the country. Now back to the episode. You mentioned Aaron Judge. I would like to see him on the mound at some point too, by the way. Yeah, um, yes. But a couple weeks ago, I'm thinking back to Dodger Stadium. You're sitting out there. You're chilling, enjoying the game. That's your decompression period. And he <laughs> crashes through the bullpen wall. Can, can you tell oh, me what bro. that experience was like? Like how crazy would it just be sitting there minding your own business and then he's in your lap? Yeah, yeah I think I think it happened really, really quickly. It was like J.D. Martinez hit this like high fly ball and it's like, you're like, oh, is it is it gonna hold up? And then all of a sudden you're like, oh my god, like this guy is on top of us. And then you're like, fans. And at that point, it's just he's making a decision. And um, yeah, I, I luckily I think I got the the least of it. He obviously got the worst of it. My partner got like sandwiched by the fence, and his coffee got spilled everywhere. But um, yeah, I mean, obviously it's like, oh my god, you knew he was gonna run into the fence. But then the whole thing is just like off its hinges. Yeah. And um, obviously, you know, he throws the ball in and you're like, okay. And then you're like, is he okay? Like, that's where your mind goes. You're just like, God, please be okay. Please be okay. Um, but I don't know. I, I go back to thinking like he had the wherewithal to throw the ball in. Like Muncie didn't end up tagging. They ended up giving him the base, but it was like, I mean, this guy is such a gamer. He's such a competitor. It's like the first thing that he thinks about, you know, is get the ball in and then I'll worry about whatever just happened. So um, it happened quickly and it was definitely a surprise. Um, but yeah, I think it was just the whole, even though it, it kind of banged him up, it was like the whole thing was just a testament to that guy's a, a competitor. He's a ball. And then he doesn't even like flinch the rest of the game. Like you can't even tell what's going on. You know what I mean? Like, I'm like, yeah. is he? I think he's okay, you know? But I guess he's a stud. Oh, he's a superhero, absolutely. Was Not your funny. phone blowing up after that? Because I think even on Sunday Night Baseball, you got a cool little one-minute like feature package yeah. there out of that. We got a little cameo. Definitely blowing up. People were I, – I was getting mixed reviews. People were like, oh, my God, you know, where's the catch them? And then – but then, like, <laughs> Scott F. Ross, who – is one of our relievers who's hurt and rehabbing right now. Uh, he was chirping. He's like, oh, my God, thank goodness you put a hand on 6280 and held him up. Because I really don't – I did my best, but I don't think I did much, if I'm being honest. Um, so it was funny, like, that Scott actually caught on to that and chirped me about it. But you got to remain humble in your 15 minutes of fame, I guess. Oh, my God. I know. You're a big deal. That's, that's insane. It's all over. It's over now. <laughs> 
not even that minutes. on your guys' podcast, so I'm back. Exactly. Another 15 minutes of fame. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, sticking with Aaron Judge, you got to experience history last year mm-hmm. as your first year as the Yankees bullpen catcher. I remember Matt Carpenter was on podcast a couple months ago. He said it was just insane watching him chase 62. What was that experience like from, you know, more of a coaching manager standpoint, just all like, was there a lot of talking every day? Like, oh, is he going to get there and stuff like that? Yeah, I think, I mean, it was, it was just incredible. It's like you yeah. you had to keep pinching yourself because you're like, number one, you're like, I would hate for him to get this close and it doesn't happen because obviously it kind of started like, well, he got in the last game of the year. Yeah. And um, you're like, I just hope he doesn't go through all of this for not nothing, but to not break it. And then you're just like, God, this poor guy needs an off day so bad. He must be so exhausted because he was going at it every single day. We had already clinched, you know, and but, you know, he's chasing history and, um, you know, a lot of respect for, for what he did and how he did it because, I, I mean, I can't imagine how exhausted he was emotionally, physically. You know, there's like a traveling circus everywhere he went and he smiled his way through it and, and, and got it done and, um, like I said, I mean, the guy is like, like you said, he's a superhero. He's impenetrable physically, mentally, emotionally. And I think that was the, the way he handled it mentally and emotionally was it. Sorry. Dale's just blowing through this table right now. Um, was it, that was the most impressive part was he didn't, there was no chink in his armor. He didn't crack. I would have folded under pressure immediately and he didn't, he didn't even flinch. So credit to him for sure. I mean, I just remember watching like the last, I think he, after he hit 60, it was every single game, people would just sit there with their phones out. Oh, and yeah. I remember just thinking, going, I can't imagine trying to go to work like my job and at just the entire stadium is recording yeah. you. Like you're well, a circus animal. It's crazy. Right. Exactly. And how about this? This is mind blowing. So I remember Jameson Tyone came up to me one day and he goes, Hey, last night, Judge asked me. So let me set the scene. Every time he would come up to the plate, the place would go bananas. And then the pitcher would come set and you could hear a pin drop. It was silent. You know, everybody taking videos and pictures. And then the pitch would come and then everybody's loud again. But like piercingly loud, really loud. Every time, if he popped up in the infield, everybody thinks it's gone and they're going crazy, right? And he asked Jameson, he goes, hey, uh, what's the crowd like when I'm at the plate? I was like, what? How do you not... You know, but that's just like how locked in he was. Right. What, he's a superhero. He's different. He's diffy, as you say. And it's like that that blew my mind as much as anything. He's like, hey, what what's it sound like? What's it sound like? I can't even hear myself think, dude. And you're turning around a hundred, you know? Right. He's different in the best way. Yeah. Because- Isn't this way more fun than talking about like actual sports? Yes. I, well, I did. Ha- <laughs> Justin's like, no, I actually have one. I have sports it. questions. I have another sports question. <laughs> I mean, we can, I mean, <laughs> I, <laughs> I'm just gonna do a hard pivot if that's cool. Yeah. Hard pivot. I'll, uh, yeah, I'll just not remotely related to what we were just talking about. Go ahead. Um, I saw that you have a third pitch again. This is the hardest. This is the worst podcasting of all time. Apologies. That's okay. I actually prefer I, – I would much rather be bouncing off the wall than, like, follow a very strict – because, as you know, I was a former podcaster, and I was an yes. excellent, an excellent bounce-off-the-walls type guy. 
I think it's more fun. Yeah, it's yeah. unpredictable. Hey, wild card. Here's a wild card question for you. Mm-hmm. Um, you're a fastball slider guy, but I saw you yes. also have a splitter. Uh, a, you only no, throw it against lefties. You've only to change up. Weird Baseball savant says splitter. Yeah, I fucking throw it. <laughs> it's fair. Okay. Well, <laughs> you're well. Whatever you want to call it, whatever the pitch is. Uh, how did you? How did you start working on it? Because like, oh, I've always I, thrown I, it. I just don't throw it. I've thrown it for four oh. years. I just throw it at a minuscule. Um, like percentage because I look at it as I don't want to get beat with my third best pitch, regardless that it's good, like would be very good if I threw it for strikes and threw it more, but like it still would be my third best of the pitches that I throw. So my thought is why get beat with my third best pitch? So if there's a scenario, right, where I feel like I have the liberty to throw it, I will, but you know, in crunch time, I'm probably not throwing it. That's why it's at like 0.01%. Yeah, and it's only against lefties too. Is that is that a conscious decision? Like, is that a, is that yeah? A, I mean, pitch? I mean, maybe if we, if I'm in a, a low leverage like four run lead, and maybe I'll maybe I'll throw right on right. But um, yeah, uh, it's it's good when I throw it. I just don't throw it a ton. Um, it actually kind of serves like warm up wise. It serves as like it gets me like back into myself, which I think is nice. Um, in terms of like extension and feeling like I'm I'm throwing how I need to be, so yeah, it's a it's a fun little thing that I have stored away in the back for, you know, I keep telling it myself I'm going to throw it, and then I keep throwing fastball breaking ball and they keep getting better and I'm like well, I can't just I can't just throw this worst pitch just because I want to mix it up more. It would it would catch people so off guard though. I know and it does. I just happened the two that I've thrown this year I threw like straight down into the ground. Not that I oh. haven't done that with my other stuff, but you know, those were probably the splitters. Those weren't the changeups. The ones into the ground were the splitters, probably. No, 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 they were changeups. <laughs> I throw it, I name it. It's the rule. You throw it, you name it. Okay. Until is Savant a, is... starts, until Savant starts pitching for me, it's a changeup. <laughs> they have a cool like breakdown. I've, I look at all the moving graphs they have for your pitches. So cool. They do. Um, yeah, Savant is a Savant does a very good job of like highlighting things for baseball nerds. Um, I wish that like they would explain like i wish you could take like savant and like all the data that we have access to and like we know what it means and like explain it for your like casual baseball fan so they would it's like when they see x and z breaks on the board they can be like oh that pitch was like went sideways a lot that's probably why it's good etc or that pitch had a lot of drop and it was hard you know that way they can they maybe you know shine a little bit more light on pitching instead of every time I see anything that promotes the game of baseball. It's hitters every time. You no love. I wanted to start though, because this summer there, you had two opportunities. It was the battle of the low brothers. Uh, I think it was the first time you and Nathaniel have played against each other in like a major league game. Or do you want to count the 2020 alt site? I mean, I definitely count it because I had fun doing that. <laughs> I know he probably he had fun as well, but this one was a little different for sure. Because I, I think it was last time you said that in the, at the old site, you like robbed him of a hit. I think that was like, you did like a diving catch or something on him. Yeah. He was, he was going through it and I laid out and, and caught a ball and I thought he was going to run across the field and take me out right there. But, um, he didn't thankfully, but, uh, it was a little, like I said, a little different this time around. 
Absolutely. Yeah. I saw you guys had like a hundred people, family and friends come out for this one. Like how long have you and him like talked about like these dates on the calendar? Is that the kind of thing when the schedule comes out, you're like, all right, we're planning. We got June, July, low brothers battle. Like, did you guys talk about that series leading up to it? I'll be honest. We didn't necessarily talk about it a lot because, you know, we play 162 games. It's like, okay, it's just another day, but you know, that series happens to be against your brother. Um, our mom was the one who was who was talking about it and planning the most, uh, making sure people are coming or if they're not coming, making sure they're getting their tickets well beforehand, uh, scheduling where people are going to stay, like Airbnb, or if they're going to get a hotel, if they're staying with my parents in this big house that they got. Um, so they were really the ones that were talking about it the most. We were just kind of like, all right, we're going to show up because we are playing a baseball game. <laughs> <laughs> the split jersey and the split polo were my favorite that your mom and dad had on. Like those, that's that's all time. They have to wear those every time. Yeah, she rocked it. Um, she was really excited to wear it. I was I was better with the, the jersey. I thought that she had on a pair of shoes too. That I was like, a, whatever, you know, they're just shoes. But I mean, you know, she's a very supportive and loving mom. So she was she was wearing her outfit and having a good time doing it. Oh, it was the best. They had them making the rounds. You and Nathaniel are on MLB Network all the time. It was so cool. Oh, yeah. uh, when you hit the homer against Texas, though, uh, Nathaniel's reaction is one of my all-time favorite. Just he looked like he wanted nothing to do with it. Did you guys say anything to each other? Like in that moment, you're rounding first and you just see Nate there. I, I said something. It wasn't necessarily at him but i i yelled out of excitement and and then i looked at his face after and you could tell that he kind of like that's his face when he's holding back a laugh honestly that, that wasn't like a super like mad face i could tell when he looked up and saw uh my mom and dad grandma and his girlfriend sitting right there that he was kind of just like holding back a laugh and because he saw them cheering at at his ballpark um right by first base so he was he wasn't happy but i know he wanted to laugh uh but he didn't so he, he kind of just kept it all under control it's one of my I, I go back and watch that clip i watched again this morning it's, it gets funnier every time um oh, that same series though when you were on first and he applied the hard slap tag to you uh was that the hardest you've ever been tagged yeah i i woke up the next morning and i was like i i forgot about it for a minute um, and I woke up the next morning and was just kind of like, you know, stretching, getting out of bed and extended my arm. I was like, man, my tricep hurts. Like what? And I'm like, oh yeah, I got absolutely destroyed by a tag on first base yesterday. And that's what we were laughing about there. Cause he knew when he put that tag down that he got me pretty good. Um, so, but yes, that was the hardest I've ever been tagged going back into first base. Do you think it was on purpose? hundred <laughs> percent. There's no way it wasn't. There's no way it wasn't on purpose. I mean, he, he knew if, if he had the opportunity, he was going to slap a tag down on me. Oh, you guys just dying laughing on first base was one of my favorite things too. Oh, um, good. All right. Last, last question on this though. I saw he was on Chris Rose's podcast. I think it was in the, the spring and he said three things. He said, you're the favorite son. Your mom would do your homework and your mom also does your laundry whenever you come home. You said there's two truths and a lie. What's the lie? Uh, I don't go out of my way to go home during the season and get my laundry done, and I, I, that doesn't happen. Um, 
if for some reason I were to end up with a basket of clothes like he would, if he were to end up with something there, like most moms, when kids come home from college, like, you know, they'll get their laundry done. But I don't, I don't necessarily, I don't go out of my way and I don't just take them home for her, her to do it. Um, but yeah, I think I'm the favorite <laughs> and, uh, she definitely did some of my homework. <laughs> Helped, helped, helped with yeah. some of my homework. Fine. Yeah, that's okay. It's a resource. I mean, yeah, just just getting instead of going to Google, you know, just mom was looking over the shoulder. Maybe when I was doing something, like, oh, let me see that, you know. So it wasn't necessarily you're procrastinating, then and just sliding it over. It was just like, well, hey, it, she's there I if mean, you need. It, yeah. It. There might have been some of that too. I didn't <laughs> like I said. I didn't. I didn't necessarily slide it over. It was more of her saying, I'm tired. I want to go to bed. Let me help you finish this. I'm like, oh, I know what I'm doing here. <laughs> so, But at the same time, she on the other comment about being the favorite, that my parents will never admit to that, but it's just kind of the way some of the things turns out, I guess, around the house or, or whatnot. It, it seems like. I just get more favoring for my brother because maybe I'm nicer sometimes <laughs> to my parents. Um, but yeah, I, I don't think they necessarily have a favorite. We just always joke about that. Well, also you're the younger sibling. So yeah. like that, I feel like that just generally plays into it. Like Kate has a bunch That's of sisters, fair. so I'm sure she can attest that like the younger one always gets, you know, a little bit more love and attention. That's yes. fair. Definitely fair. So who right, got Kate, in go trouble ahead. more when you were younger? Uh, like when we were little, little, both in the house. Um, like, like high school, yeah, yeah. I don't necessarily, I think we were both pretty good, but he probably, I don't, I don't necessarily know the answer to that, but I would say it's him. I, I don't, I don't think that I, I did much to really get in trouble in high school. One, two. Through the middle, base hit center field. Herman rounding third. They're waving him in. The throw comes in from Heath. It's not in time. And the Kansas City Monarchs take back the crown. Miles Wolf Club champions 2023. So that a little context. It was a game-winning hit in the American Association. Uh, Brian, how cool was that? That's that's not a good question, but how cool was that? No, it was it was unbelievable, honestly. It was so much fun that the playoffs, like in the, uh, was it this? It was like the series before the championship. We were losing to Sioux City like seven one or something, and we came back and won. And it was not. I mean, it was half like we came back, and it was half they just like imploded. It was pretty crazy. <laughs> But but we won, so that was like insane. That was the craziest comeback I've ever seen, or like been a part of for sure. That happened, and then uh, Chicago, the championship series. We went to Chicago for the first game, and they beat us in like eighteen innings. I think, I think it went seventeen or eighteen innings. Like we, it was two. We lost two one in seventeen or eighteen innings, or like three two. It was insane and it was just the longest game ever and then we beat them three straight after that but we were we were up two one in the series and that game happened and we were up six one 
in that game. And they came back and made it 6-6. So we, everyone was kind of like, shit, we can't play. Are we really going to blow this right now? And, like, the, the running joke was that I had booked a flight home, like, at the start of the playoffs in case we lost. Or, like, what? Well, so, like, in case we lost, I booked a flight home so that I could leave right away. And then I was just – I had it so, like, you could move it, you know? Like, you, I paid extra so I could just, like, move it every time that we weren't going to leave that day. So it was just, like, the running joke that I was – I had my flight already and everything, and I had to keep moving it. And uh, so everybody was saying they knew that we were going to win when I was up because I already had my my flight booked for the next morning. So they knew I was getting, getting hit right there. But – it was crazy. All right, I'll, I'll make this fast. The I lost. So my, you know, my bat company, Richie Bats. We were certified for twenty and twenty one in that, you know, MLB, and we had we haven't since then. So I was using old Hicks while I was there, but I still had one Richie bat with me that I would just use for like BP and practice. And when we were in Chicago, it just like disappeared. I don't know. I don't know if I put it somewhere. Like I don't know what happened. I thought it was just gone. And I had two old hicks left. That was it. And then I somehow broke them. I forget if it was both in that last game or if it was like one the game before and then one in that last game. So I was about to use my buddy Taylor Snyder's bat. And out of nowhere, a guy, Andy Yerzy, hands me my Richie bat. And I was like, this was in the bottom of the ninth. I'm like, dude, where the fuck did you – like, I didn't ask him to or, like, anything. Like, he just, like, found it and just brought it down and gave it to me. So I'm, like, saying to my manager, I'm like, yo, can I use this bat in the game or do I have to use something else? Because when I hit this walk-off, I don't want them to, like, call me out afterwards because I used some bat that's not allowed. And he's like, no, no, fucking use it. And – there it was. That was the hit. And oh my God. it was with the first time I used a Richie bat in forever. And the <laughs> in that pile, all I mean, it was nuts. I knew it. The, the shortstop was playing me over. I was literally trying to hit a ball like to where the shortstop would normally be playing. But it went more up the middle. But thankfully it worked. I hit it hard enough like where it was definitely getting through. But not like too hard or too high that the center fielder was going to have a shot throwing him out. So I knew right away. And, like, in the side view, I slammed my helmet down, like, halfway down the line, or, like, knowing that Herman's going to score. And whatever that happens, it's just, like, nuts. I think I took my jersey off. And I just, like, blacked out. It was nuts. And then all I hear all I hear in, like, the chaos of everyone jumping on me and, like, throwing stuff is our, our closer, Patrick Weigel, who pitched in the big leagues for the Braves, is going, you don't got to change your flight again. You don't got to change your flight again. And that that's like the only thing I remember here. And it was so funny, like looking back on, but it was, it was, it was incredible. That night was so much fun. I mean, I'll never, I'll never forget that for sure. That's awesome. There was a lot going oh, yeah. on. <clears throat> How was that? That's your first championship, right? Or have you won one in the minors? I won one in the minors. Technically I won two in the minors. I won one in Billings in short season um, that I was a, big part of and that was a lot of fun and then in my first year in double a in pensacola we actually won but i was hurt so you know 
You get a ring for this one, three, though, right? Three championships. Oh, yeah. We're getting a big ring for this one. <laughs> they're fired up about it. They're they're pretty pumped. Yeah, I think you have to wait till like next summer to go get it or something. I did. I think I yeah. briefly looked into this, so uh, you have to change your schedule around June of next year. Get your. Get you never your know. Yeah. There's there's been a big topic of conversation online. I watched the MLB Network segment about this. I've talked to Brian about this. It's just like your your swing mechanic evolution, I guess, over the last couple of years, like in Kansas City to now. I, I, I think Mark DeRosa said it was it was all about the, you took the bat off your shoulder. And that was one of the things he pointed out. And like Brian said, it's like you're more closed off now. Like, can you like walk me through the changes that you've made that have been so beneficial to your swing and, and your success? Yeah, I can try. I, I'll tell you what, man. It's been I'll tell you what, it's been and I you guys mentioned this on the um that podcast, but it was uh or on that episode, it was really a combination of things. Um combination of like taking something from every hitting coaches that I've had over the last few years. Um just trying to learn and then, you know, ultimately getting an opportunity to like test it out consistently, you know. Um which is the Orioles gave me a great opportunity this year to play. And um but yeah, the the bat on the shoulder thing, when my bat went from here to here, let me get it here. From here to here to start, that was an Orioles thing. That was that was uh Ryan Fuller, Cody Ashi and, and uh uh Borgs, Borg Schulte. It was um because I had I think my first like month or so with the O's this year, I was still kind of resting it on my shoulder, which I had done for so long. And I was hitting decent. I think I was hitting like 260, and they brought it to me and they were like, Hey, what if we made this move? Uh, and I was kind of like, oh, well, I'm doing better than I ever have, you know, but I decided to trust them on it and, and it obviously paid off. But so that the point of that was that my upper body and my hands and bat had all my torso had all been kind of like glued together. So like I would like lean back and then like if it was middle away, like I'm hammering it. But I didn't have very good adjustability to like move my like a, adjust to a pitch down and in, like get on top of the pitch. I wasn't. I wasn't using my ability to like adjust things. Um, I was just kind of glued up here. Um, so I think that was a big time breakthrough for me. Um, Cause all of a sudden I started handling, pit, you know, sliders down and in that I would swing over and miss by a foot for the last four years. Like I would catch one and it would be a homer and I'd be like, Holy shit. What was that? I've never done that. You know, what was that? Um, or a fastball up, you know, being able to get on top of the fastball up and, and hit it for, you know, back, backspin a ball in the gap things. I was hitting balls that I had not hit in those pit in those locations ever. Um, and I, and when I started to do that, you know, it's kind of like those days in Idaho, like you just get that confidence rolling and you, you know, start believing in what you're doing. Um, and, and, uh, things can snowball for you in a good way. The trio of Orioles hitting coaches sounds like they, they sound like they have their stuff together. Uh, I think Kate actually had a question about that. Yeah. Just trying to digest like all of the different, you know, responses that you get from hitting coaches throughout the year, especially being more of like a veteran presence. How do you kind of pick and choose what exactly you should focus on? Or is it just like a bunch of trial and error in the box? It's something that you work on in practice and then implement in the game. Yeah. I mean, I think, um, for me being because I've had so many great hitting coaches um, and it's like sometimes things might just because of, you know, for whatever reason, things might not translate to into your brain. Um, but I think with 
my goal was to try to take something from every hitting coach I've ever had. Um, and when I got to the Orioles, um, they, it just seemed like I, everything they were saying made sense to me. And, um, you know, they had so many great ideas and so many, um, you know, they just gave me examples of why we were doing this and, and, um, how it could potentially help me out. And, um, and then, you know, you watch them work with Gunner and, and Adley and, Tandair and all these guys that are, you know, smashing baseball, SETI, like all these, these studs. And I'm like, well, it's working for these guys. Like, I, you know, maybe I should buy in. Um, and, you know, I, so I, I pretty much just trusted them from the start. And, um, you know, all three of those guys, they really did do a really good job. And they're really good at, um, you know, kind of relating to players and understanding their, their guys and, and what makes them tick. And, um, you know, they just can't say enough good things about those guys. I mean, it clearly worked out for you extremely well this year. Can you think of like a specific moment where it just like a light bulb went off in your brain or like it clicked at the plate and you just felt really comfortable in, in, in you know, like a good groove? Yeah, um, I think I took a batting practice in spring training and I was hitting balls like really. I, I've always had kind of an issue backspinning balls to right field, like in the air. And I got to spring training and we started working and I just got to a point where it was like, I couldn't miss. Like I was backspinning everything and, you know, balls carrying like crazy. And it was like minimal effort and it just felt like, right. Felt free and easy. And um, so that was maybe a moment that it clicked. Um, you know, I forgot to mention one guy that's really helped me out big time is uh, shout out Dan Hennigan, my guy at brain and barrel. Um, I went and saw him last off season and, and I took a lot from him too. He kind of got the ball rolling and it turns out that him and, and Ryan Fuller, the guy from the O's kind of, you know, had, had knew each other a little bit and kind of had, you know, very similar, um, ideas for what I should do with my swing. Um, but so, you, you know, you do really, you know, you feel really good in batting practice, you feel really good in the cage. You know, I feel like you're buying into what these guys are saying. And then, um, I wasn't sure until I got to the game. And then when it translated into the game, you know, you kind of have that confidence, like, uh Oh, like I might be a problem. You know, I might, I might be able to do some things. Um, but me, so, I mean, maybe that moment in spring training, but other than that, once, once it kind of got game time, it just seemed like everything just happened really quick. I had a question though, because I went back and I was looking because I saw in 2012, I think you led all of professional baseball and strikeouts when you were called up to the, uh, to the Oakland A's. Um, and I was reading like your scouting report and even just like knowing how you pitch now, it's like, you know, it's like 90, 92, I think is what they said. I I'm so fascinated by how pitchers that don't have like top tier velocity are able to like have success. And obviously you did for a long time. Like, is it like, is it that like, what do you have to have like a different mentality when you know you don't have upper velocity? Like, can you take me through like pitching, knowing that, you know, your fastball isn't what other guys are. Yeah, so uh, you know who Dallas Braden is? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so Dallas came down. Uh, Dallas 24th rounder also, by the way. Dallas came down to the minor leagues one day. And uh, I don't remember word for word what he said, but he basically sat down all the minor leaguers, pitchers, and was like, all right, who's the first rounder here? Raise your hand. A couple guys, you know, raised their hand. He's like, all right, second rounders. All right, you guys get out of here. This conversation isn't for you. And like, he let him stay. But like, the point was, was he was getting after this, like long, probably 15, 20 minutes of him talking to us. But the point was, was like, uh, 
I forget the people's names that he was talking to specifically that he knew where he was like, Hey, I'll use myself in this bar where he'd be like, Hey Dan, like, yeah, you don't have Steven Strasburg's fastball, but he doesn't have your slider. He doesn't have, like, you might not have this, but he doesn't have your sinker and he named somebody else. He might, and he just did that for everybody. And he was just saying like, you know, when you're up on the mound, like you're the best. Like you are the best, you have the best fastball, you have the best change, you have the best slider. And if you don't have that mentality, like get out of here because he ain't going to get it done. And this is like the year after he threw his perfect game. So like we all had like utmost respect, like this guy's getting it done. This guy's doing his thing. Um, And there is just like so much truth in that where it's like when I'm pitching, like I don't really care that I don't throw. I wish I threw 100. Don't get me wrong. But I feel like I act like I do. Like when I'm up there pitching, it's like. I, I believe in myself so much that it's like, I might as well be throwing a hundred because I have what it takes to get you out. Go ahead. Anybody get in the box. I'm better than you. And it's just kind of the way you have to think. And I think a lot of that is stuff that they ingrain in you as Oakland A's minor league pitchers, or at least they used to where that mentality is just what I came up with in the sport and what I came up with as a pro that like, I just don't, I just don't, I was getting repetitive on this, but I just don't know any different in that where it's just like, I'm the best there is. Go ahead. Try to get a hit. I'm going to challenge you in the zone. You're probably going to swing and miss. Like I was taught to throw sliders in the strike zone because you have swing and miss stuff. All right, cool. I don't even know what that really means. I'm a 20 year old. I've only been pitching for a few years, but it sounds great. And as you, you just start doing it and you start having success with it and you just believe in it. Um, but what really took off for me that year you're talking about was um, Jill Patterson, the pitching coordinator. I've been working with me for years on trying to find a change up. And that year, it finally like clicked. It finally worked. And it was like, all of a sudden, I had this weapon to get lefties out with. That was just, it was a game changer for me. Like, literally, a life changer, actually. Like, it was just one of those things where it's like, all of a sudden, I was not just a two-pitch pitcher to right-handers and kind of a, a, a spotty two-pitch pitch. I was a three-pitch pitcher to both sides of the plate, started using change-ups to both. So, like, really learning that third, like, plus pitch was what really, like, was beneficial for me. and. Um, at the time too, now we can quantify it a little bit, but like I throw 90, 92 back then, but I threw it with a ridiculous amount of ride on the fastball where it was like 22 to 24 inches of ride where like the average ride is like 15 inches. You know I mean? Like just stuff we just didn't know where it's like, man, why does everybody swing through Dan's fastball at the top of the zone? Like we didn't know. Like no one, there's no way to, your eyes can't quantify. Well, you know, we sink in. No, like we just were guessing at that point, but now we can quantify it. We know why it was working back then. And there was like two guys ahead of me. Uh, one was Estrada and one was some feller named Kershaw that had more ride on their fastball than me. And so uh, a couple of guys that really just showed, like paved the way for for game planning for me. Obviously a lot different for Kershaw for me to learn. But like for me to like watch, I can see how like they're using their fastballs because I had a similar fastball at the time. Because this wasn't like 97 to 100 Kershaw. This was like you know, a little, a little lower velocity. I still couldn't throw as hard as him, but like I could, I could see how he was using his fastball, like kind of deal. So uh, just really trying to, you know, just get as many ounces as possible. But like, I felt like I was throwing a hundred and I wasn't, but like not many guys were back then either. I mean, it's only 15 years ago, but like not many guys were throwing a hundred, like maybe a couple. And like, I felt like I was a, I was below average, but I was like really close to the average where it was just like, now we just keep seeing velos creep up and up and up. Um, and, uh, you know, it's just like, it's great for the sports, more entertaining, it's more everything. So, um, I love it, but yeah, I don't really, 
don't really know much other than the fact that I felt like I was throwing a hundred, even though I wasn't. And I was the first one always to whip my head around and check out that 90 up on the, up on the scoreboard too. check, checking out that philo. It's just like something about pitchers. You just have to know, you just have to know what you're throwing. And uh, I didn't care. Change up. Just don't want to know. Was it 82? No, it was 83. Ah, let's go. Feeling good today. You know, just like, it's just like one of those deals. You just have to check. You have to look. And uh, it's, you know, uh, I said earlier, you know, that whatever level you're at is, is, is your big leagues. Well, I think kind of goes the same thing for pitching, whatever, however hard you throw, that's your hundred. Like, so if I'm, if I'm, if I'm topping out at 92, if I'm getting 92 that day, you better look out. Cause that's, it's coming in hot, you know? And uh, I had a teammate for a long time, really good friend of mine, Tommy Malone. Uh, never been accused of being a hard thrower. No one's ever accused Tommy of that in his life. Love you, Tommy. And uh, he's, He's in there and he's like 87, 90 and just dotting and just punching out. One of my favorite ones was like he he punched out. Uh, it was like these, these three fellers. They were pretty good. It was like uh, Hunter, Trout, and Pujols. Maybe it was maybe he broke their bats or anyway. It's just these 85 mile an hour cutters in, and they're just like these guys are just getting so frustrated and they're just getting so mad. And uh, I was talking to one of them the other day, and I was or a couple days afterwards, and I was just like, man, like is that? Is that that Tommy's pretty tough to see, huh? And they're like, dude, it doesn't matter who you are. We have to time you up. And like the harder you throw, like the less time I have to make a decision, right? But with his fastball cut or change of combination, it doesn't matter. He could be throwing 80, topping out at 80, and he'd be getting me out. Like he's just pinpoint command with good stuff. And it's just like, it's just not hard. And I think I learned a big lesson there that it was just like, huh, so you having to time me up and it's like one of those things that my pitching coordinator Gil was probably like if I said it to him he'd be like you dumbass I told you that years ago we're like I'm just like all of a sudden it clicked where it's like well it is really just about messing up your timing so I want you to hit it I just want you to hit it incredibly soft at a terrible launch angle right at somebody but it's just like messing up someone's timing is really what pitching is all about and so uh just being around a lot of different styles of pitchers uh really kind of helped me learn who I was as a pitcher you know, I, I had a guy on my team, Jared Parker, just throwing these 95, 97 mile an hour bowling ball sinkers. And I'm like, oh, I'm going to try that. And like, well, you threw 91 and it didn't sink. So don't do that. You know, it's just like learning who you are as a pitcher. Um, and then uh, th we, we had another saying where it was just like, stay within yourself. And that was like something where it was like, you can't be someone you're not. Like, I can't go up there and pretend like I have Araldis Chapman's fastball, albeit I'm right-handed, he's left, but you get the point. Where it's like, I can't go up there and pretend like I have something I don't. Like, I need to know who I am. I need to establish who I am, like, in my head. I need to, like, know who that is and just be that person. And if you can just be the best version of yourself, you're going to probably, like, where you end up. So, yeah, my 92 is my 100. There you go. Put it on a shirt. I love that. Who Who is the best? Who's the best? I don't want to say soft tosser. Is that is that, a, is that, is that a, a mean way to describe pitchers that don't throw hard? Who's the best guy that doesn't have premium velocity going right now in your opinion the best guy without premium velocity tommy malone still going so i'm gonna say tommy um let's see i don't know i don't know i i gotta be honest i can't say i watched a ton of major league baseball in the last year um i i really haven't you know being overseas uh they're they're getting ready to to get their day started it's like nine o'clock in the morning over there you know it's like it's just a totally different spot so I couldn't even tell you who's really throwing hard and who's not. Um, I'd probably say of the guys that I would assume, unless he had a big velo jump, I would probably say Kershaw is probably the best non-hard throwing pitcher. Um, if we're going to classify 
Strider as being a hard thrower. Kershaw is not a hard thrower. Um, and uh, obviously, we would all take Clayton Kershaw's career. Don't I'm not. This is by no means a knock on Kershaw to anybody listening here. Um, but I'm saying like of, of the non-hard throwers these days, I think it's just it's hands down easy. The guy's stuff is elite. And uh, maybe even throw Greenkey's name in that mix, too. Both guys used to throw a hundred though. It's like cheating. Like they've, 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 they've come down to my level and I've like been working my ass off my whole career to stay at this 90. And these guys are over <laughs> here just like dropping down to my level. Finally, uh, thousands of innings in like, don't get me wrong. I, I understand yeah. it. But, uh, uh, I think those two guys and obviously Grinky's just a special character in so many regards, but, uh, the ability to throw a change up harder than a fastball at times is like one of my favorite things of all time. So, um, I would say he's probably the, probably those two guys, just two hall of famers. They're probably the best non hard throwers right now. You, you mentioned this, but like the common connection between you and him obviously is like your dad. So they both played in the Orioles together. Um, what was it like having somebody like Ryan who like you could have that same kind of shared experience with? Yeah. You know, obviously, um, he, he, we both had the pressure, um, of our parents playing, but obviously his was a little bit greater than mine, um, you know, being the son of Cal, but, you know, I could go to him for a lot of things. And, and that's one of the biggest things I respect about him is, is the way he handled it growing up. I mean, there was, there was a lot of pressure on him. Um, but you know, in being in this Baltimore area too, at Gilman, um, you know, I don't think it was fair the way he was, he was treated. Um, it was almost like, you know, people treated it like a curse to him that, Oh, your, your, your father's Cal. So, um, you know, if you go for three today, you're terrible. You're, you're a disgrace to your family. It's like, you know, seeing him go through some of the things that he had to go through just for being the son of, of, um, you know, a great player, you know, I, I didn't think was fair. And so it was tough at times being as close as I was with him to watch, you know, some of the, the stuff he had to go through, especially in the Baltimore area. But, um, you know, being able to watch it and see the way he handled it, that was, that was huge for me. Um, you know, it, it definitely shaped, shaped me and helped me handle, you know, different adversity through, you know, dealing with the same things, um, just not to the, as, as great of an extent, but, um, yeah, definitely, definitely learned from him in a lot of ways. Especially at a young age too, right? Cause like it's, it's very like your formulative years are just like spent, like in his case, obviously under like a more intense spotlight, but yeah, I can't imagine just the scrutiny of like playing the game that your dad did at like, they did at such a high level. And then there's yeah. you that's like, was that, was that hard? Obviously it was, but like, what can you kind of put into words, like how difficult that was? Yeah, it was tough. Just the expectations. Um, you know, I was, I was an okay player at ninth and 10th grade. Um, so like trying to, trying to make my small myself as an athlete while doing it with the expectations of, okay, your dad's a major league baseball player. Well, just cause he's a major league baseball player doesn't mean that, you know, I'm just naturally going to be able to hit the ball farther, hit the ball harder or, or do any of that stuff. I mean, that's, it's not just a guarantee. You know? So there's, there's so much work and stuff that has to go behind it. And, and just the process of, of becoming an athlete and, and going through your growing pains and, um, you know, learning how to compete and, and become an athlete. And, and so, you know, people just automatically assume, oh, you know, it, it's so much easier for him because his dad was a major league baseball player. Of course, he's going to be, you know, a baseball player. And it's, um, you know, some of that stuff's funny to me to listen to. And, um, you know, it's funny. I was watching this stuff with this weekend with, with Charlie Woods and, you know, the expectations for him, it's, it's, it's ridiculous. I mean, and I, I fall, I fall into it as well. Like I expect, I expect Charlie to win, win the masters by 2030 and, and do all this stuff. And, um, you know, just because we fall in love with, with their dads. Um, but 
yeah, it's tough, but it's it's also uh, it's also fun. I mean, you, you get to you deal with them and and embrace them, and um, yeah. Charlie and his dad have like the same exact like swing and mannerisms. I'm wondering if that kind of got like passed down between you and your dad. Like, do you like is your swing the same as his? Like, are there things he did that you do? Yeah, there's a lot of similarities. Um, you go back and look at you know some of his baseball cards and some of my baseball cards. There's so many different mannerisms that we had the same and uh, moves and our swing and um, you know some d- different setups is not as, as identical as, as Charlie and Tiger are, but um, so many similarities and so many different same mannerisms. And so it's uh, it's funny to to see that and and look at you know young pictures of him and um, I just don't have the mustache he rocked when he played. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's a good point. Although I was looking, I was going to ask this later, but like the Chicago White Sox, I'm jumping around a lot, but like the Chicago White Sox just seem like they have the mustache thing figured out. There's like yeah. half a dozen guys I feel like on the team with a stash have, can you just not grow one? Is that just like a conscious uh, decision? I just can't, you know, when you're competing with some of the guys that are, that are rocking them on there, um, you know, when we had Rodon, Rodon rocked one. And then um, obviously Berger and, and Cease, they, they, they fed off each other last year. It was <laughs> cease, cease the way he feeds off that and embrace that has, has been funny. Um, so yeah, it just, it caught on and, and those guys rolled with it and, and I couldn't even compete with what they were rocking. So I just decided to, to <laughs> let them do that one. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean, Dylan ceases is my favorite. I mean, that's just oh like, that's the coolest, like respect anybody that can rock it. Yeah. 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 He's, he's fully embraced it and, and he's the perfect guy to, to rock something like that. So, um, yeah, I was, I was all for it. Just, just not for me. <laughs> um, going back to your dad though, I, I think he was your baseball coach in high school too, wasn't he? Yeah. Yeah. What? Okay. So that's a whole different thing. Like being the coach's son, not only the coach's son, but the son of a guy that played in the major leagues. Like what was, what was his coaching style? Was it like, did he try to not, not play favorites? Like how, how did that work? Yeah. So I'd say in the beginning it was, it was, um, you know, he, he made me do everything to get on the field and almost to the point where like we would butt heads all the time. Um, you know, he, he, he tried so hard not to play favorites and, and play like, you know, daddy ball and all that stuff. I mean, you know, I was, it finally got to the point where he, he told me afterwards, I obviously didn't know at the time I was just playing to play whatever, but you know, coaches had to come to him and say, Hey, we need to play him more. Like <laughs> it's okay. He's earned the right to play. You can, you can put him in the lineup more. No one's going to, it's, we're all for it. Like, so he, he, he definitely, um, which I appreciated, you know, he made me earn it, you know, nothing was, nothing was given. Um, and, and I really, you know, him and I, our relationship grew even stronger when he was, um, the coach, you know, we had a great relationship from that and, um, yeah, we just had a ton of respect for each other and, and we're kind of put the, you know, father, son aside when we're on the field and, and in practice and, um, yeah, it was great. Just like tough coaching in general not just like from him but just like throughout your career were you somebody that like do you respond well to that kind of coaching style or like do you were you the kind of person that like you kind of need to be you know kicked along a little bit yeah I loved uh the the tough the tough was how I kind of grew up you know my dad was always tough it was you know and I just feel like when you're coached that way you know positive you know saying good job or, or or saying you know this positive stuff means more that way. Um, I feel like it's actually when you know, you know, to get a positive remark, remark or a good game from him, that that meant so much more than someone that would just say it every day, every day, like, oh, good record. And it, I just feel like it loses meaning. Um, so having him that was very tough and um, 
but when you heard a good game or a good at bat or something like that, it just meant so much more. And so that, that was how I was raised. And, you know, I, I love that side of it. I, I think that, um, you know, it's, it's getting tougher and tougher. I talk to our college coach all the time. It's just getting tougher and tougher because I feel like, you know, that side of coaching is getting pushed out a little bit too much right now. And it's too much of just, you know, good job, good at bat, good. Everything's good. Everything's good. And, then, you know, and then you see, you know, see guys get some criticism and there's pushback just because they don't know how to handle it as well. I, that's a great point. I've never actually thought of it that way. I've all, I've always thought of it as like the opposite where I'm like, dang, you know, like when I played baseball, I was just like, this guy is all over me. I'm not a fan of this. Like it's, it sucks, but like, yeah, yeah I guess you're right. Like the, like the moments where it's like, Hey man, you, you really did a good job out there after all of that. Like, yeah, I don't think I've ever actually heard anybody articulate it that way, but it makes yeah. so much sense. Mm-hmm. What, what, like, what's like the breakdown of like coaches you've had that have been like hard on you versus like you know, the opposite. Is it like, is there one more than the other? I just think it's a, it's a good mixture to have when, you know, your manager or your head coach or, um, you know, that's, I feel like that's the way assistant coaches and head coaches can kind of feed off each other. Um, You know, I think that managers and head coaches can be a lot tougher. And then you have your assistant coaches who are there in the grind every day working with you that, you know, are just more positive. Um, And I think that that creates a really good, like, Tony La Russa was, you know, obviously a Hall of Fame manager, but he was really good at that. It was, you know, same thing from him. When he told you good job or, or good good at bat or something like that, you know, first off, you know it's coming from a Hall of Famer. But second off, it's just, you know, the way he was, you know, he he made you earn his respect. And um, and so those went a long way hearing that stuff. And so, but, you know, your assistant coaches, your hitting coach that you're in there grinding with every day, um, you know, those are your more positive guys, kind of your more, mental side of that that builds you up because baseball just continuously breaks you down and before we get out of here a special thank you to the band stick figure for allowing us to use today's intro and outro music 